Welcome to Market Outlook, a special edition of the Wealth Experience Podcast. In these timely episodes, we provide the latest investment news and expert commentary on the markets, the economy, and investing. Brought to you by BMO Wealth Management. Hello, my name is Michael Gregory. I'm the Deputy Chief Economist at BMO Capital Markets. I'm joined by two of my colleagues at BMO Financial Group, uh, Leslie Marks, uh, who is the Chief Investment Strategist at BMO Private Banking, and Stéphane Rochon, who's the Head of Private Client Strategy at BMO Nesbitt Burns. Today, we'll be providing you with some of our thoughts on the markets, and allow me to make a few comments first as we get started. On March 20th, we got a picture of what the Fed being patient might look like after January's policy pivot. The FOMC's new summary of economic projections sported a medium forecast for no rate hikes in 2019, down from two in September's SEP and only one move in 2020 as before. In fact, we judged the Fed could be on hold indefinitely. The Treasury market, however, is increasingly betting that the Fed could cut rates with all yields out to seven-year maturities now trading below the current Fed funds target of 2.375%. At the Bank of Canada, the talk about needing to raise interest rates into a neutral range has shifted to talk about increased uncertainty about the timing of future rate increases. Like the Fed, we also judged the Bank of Canada could be on hold indefinitely. Meanwhile, the Canadian bond market has taken its cue from U.S. Treasuries, with all yields out to 10-year maturities now trading below the bank's current overnight target of 1.75%. The reason for these policy pivots share a common theme in that the global economy is slowing, with risks exacerbated by trade policy uncertainty for the Fed. There is also the concern over core inflation's failure to lift to 2%, while for the Bank of Canada, the recent correction in the housing market and apparent increased interest sensitivity of Canadian households saddled with record high debt burdens have become increased concerns. Even Ottawa's fiscal policy turned a bit more stimulative in the recent federal budget. Note that south of the border, the U.S. government had already done its massive tax cuts and spending hikes at the beginning of 2018, so we judged there's little scope to do more now. At the Canadian provincial level, fiscal policy has been more steady as she goes, but with 6 of 10 provinces now projecting budget surpluses, there is now some fiscal capacity for a potential pivot towards more stimulus if the economy warrants. With that as a background, Leslie Marks, take us around the world on what we are seeing from policymakers. Thank you, Michael. And I I think a tour around the world is imperative because, as you mentioned, the policy pivot story is really a dichotomy between what we're seeing in the U.S. and what we're seeing in the rest of the world. In general, we've seen central bankers delay or walk back from tighter monetary policy and political regimes being forced to pivot towards fiscal policy in order to stimulate their economies. Let's start by looking in our own backyard. The Bank of Canada took advantage of economic strength in our economy by hiking the benchmark rate five times over the past year and a half. And although they didn't quite achieve their goal of the neutral rate, they at least created some dry powder for the next economic downturn to cut rates if need be which is why the market has moved so quickly to price in almost a 50% chance of a rate cut this year. On the fiscal front, the latest budget provided a glimpse into the potential 
for fiscal stimulus with $23 billion of additional spending by the Trudeau government. Although, of course, disappointing for us not to see a move in either the corporate or individual tax rates, given our poor competitive position we are now in when compared with the U.S. post their tax reform in late 2017. Moving on to the rest of the world, after a period of synchronized global growth, we saw some cracks forming with weakness in economic data coming from the major economies last year. Germany, China, and Japan, for example. This was in contrast to the strength that we saw in the U.S. So even though central bankers wanted to wean their countries off of low interest rates, weak inflation and anemic growth did not allow for this. We saw the ECB continue to push out the end of quantitative easing and the target date for increasing interest rates maintaining their overall accommodative stance. The Bank of Japan also had no basis to increase interest rates as weaker exports weighed on their economy. Japan is also facing a consumption tax increase coming in October. So various fiscal stimulus policies such as tax rebates on homes and vehicles have been put in place to offset the pending tax hike. The government is also likely under pressure to even cancel the consumption tax hike altogether. The Chinese central bank has also committed to easing monetary policy in the force of slowing economic, in the face of slowing economic growth with bringing down market interest rates and cuts in bank reserve requirements. And earlier this month, they announced a reduction in VAT rates as well as additional infrastructure spending. Now, the U.S., of course, has been a very different story, as you mentioned, because with the enactment of tax reform in December 2017, the U.S. economy experienced a sugar rush when other economies were waning. And you could argue that the Federal Reserve was forced to act to counter the stimulus by tightening monetary conditions through the Fed funds rate. In other words, the monetary policy was required because of the fiscal stimulus. The real question will be, does the U.S. government have any dry powder to utilize in the event of a slowdown in their economy? Thank you, Leslie. All right. So uh, we're seeing all these policy pivots around the world. Uh, You know, how will fiscal and monetary policy shape the global economy going forward? Overall, I would say we see more of the same for the global economy. Governments will be forced to use their balance sheets and continue on the fiscal stimulus path, such as infrastructure spending, tax cuts, or incentives, because many lack the traditional monetary policy tools, such as rate cuts, because rates are already at or near zero. We recently crossed the threshold of zero or near zero interest rates in $10 trillion of bonds globally. Canada is in a fortunate position because if need be, the Bank of Canada can cut rates, although not to the same extent as in other cycles. And this would have a devastating impact on our dollar if the Fed wasn't cutting rates at the same time. Our balance sheet is also fairly healthy at an estimated 30% debt to GDP ratio, which means that although our deficit would rise, there is room for fiscal stimulus from our government. One caveat to the fiscal spend story would be that given we are facing an election year, 
which may result in a change of government, the likelihood of more fiscal spending in 2020 is a point that now could be questionable. It is possible that while European, Chinese, Japanese, and Canadian policymakers will be forced to continue on the fiscal spending path, the U.S. will not be required to do so. This is a scenario where the U.S. economy continues on its decoupled path of strong jobs growth, low inflation, and moderate growth. It is possible, given the closed nature of their economy and the reliance of the U.S. Uh, and the reliance on the U.S. consumer, which has a strong outlook as long as unemployment remains low. But if the U.S. economic growth picture turns from moderate to negative due to contagion from the slowdown experienced around the world, on the monetary policy side, they certainly do have room to cut interest rates, but like Canada, not to the same extent as in prior cycles, where the starting point for the overnight rate was much higher. On the fiscal side, with low interest rates, even though the U.S. government may technically have more room to tap the fiscal balance sheet and finance fiscal spend, this is being heavily debated, as there may be a breaking point where global buyers of U.S. treasuries no longer feel comfortable with the high debt levels of the U.S. government and begin to abandon U.S. treasuries as a safe haven asset class, a classic buyer strike. And in the U.S., we can't ignore the importance of politics with the 2020 election around the corner. The divided Congress is unlikely to come together in agreement on fiscal expenditures, which may leave monetary policy as the only tool to move quickly to stimulate the U.S. economy. Thank you, Leslie. Okay, turning to Stéphane Rochamp. Uh, what has caused the flat inverted U.S. yield curve and what are the implications of this for equity markets in general? Okay, great question, <clears throat> Michael. When um, you look at the rhetoric around the market currently, I would say this so-called inverted yield curve has been front and center. And it's created what we would characterize as a freakout. It's characterized a freakout and taking a step back, the reason for this is because an inverted yield curve, which means that long-term rates are lower than short-term rates. Uh, that has been a consistently useful predictor of recessions since World War II. Um, but uh, I did want to add a caveat. Uh, the yield curve is not inverted across every maturity. What we're talking about right now is the inversion of the 10-year, three-month Treasury yield curve. Uh, and the three-month rate is actually most sensitive to the actions of the Federal Reserve. Um, uh, if you look at the 10-year minus two-year yield curve, uh, that one is not actually inverted yet. Uh, at this point. And I think, I think that's, um, that's a, a helpful distinction because that's the one that we tend to look at um, because it is a, uh, from our perspective, a, a better reflection of the difference between the long-term and the short-term uh, bond market. We, we also want to uh, be very clear about this. While it has been historically a very good indicator, there are instances where the yield curve has actually inverted and did not predict a recession. It doesn't happen very often, but it did happen in 1966, and it did happen in the mid-90s. 
And the other point we want to make is having looked at decades of historical data, um, the, an inversion of the yield curve tends to predict a recession something like 14 to 18 months ahead of time. And when you look at the equity markets, they tend to discount real world events about six to nine months ahead of time. So there is a little bit of a disconnect here. And as a consequence of that, if you look at the history of inverted yield curves, um, this is kind of interesting, the stock market has tended to rally after the actual inversion and keeps going up for a few quarters. Um, so at the very least, even if this is a reliable signal of a recession to come, and, and we would never discount uh, the meaning of the signal, it is a useful signal. Even if it is, then we still have some time to adjust portfolios. And, and the way we look at it is, when is it time to get more defensive on portfolios? Typically, the way we'll express that is by reducing our equity allocation. We think that is still premature at this point. And so um, as we look at this, um, at this yield curve, which has certainly, you know, certainly flattened considerably, you look at long-term rates, they have been on a steady downtrend. Um, and to, to your point, Michael, uh, this flies in the face of investor expectations, uh, investor expectations last year. Um, so I would say other reasons why this has happened, obviously a growth slowdown. Growth has slowed down considerably in Europe. It has um, slowed down in, uh, in China as well, as well as in North America. Uh, but I think what uh, investors may not be paying enough attention to are all these stimulative measures that China has put through, over 70 by our count. Um, and so at the very least, we believe that the Chinese economy or economic momentum should stabilize. And that's going to be reflected in official economic figures over the next few months, in, in our opinion. So this growth slowdown um, would be factor number one. Factor number two, and it's interrelated, uh, very low inflation, right? And so given the fact that inflation is so low, globally speaking, Bond investors have been more comfortable buying long-term maturities because uh, inflation is the enemy of bonds when you think about it. When inflation goes up, then bond investors need to be paid compensation to take on that risk because it erodes the real value of money, clearly. And then I would say the, the third big factor is the fact that so much of the global bond market is trading with negative interest rates. By our calculation, a full over $10 trillion in the global bond market, so roughly a quarter of it, or even a little bit more than that, is trading with negative interest rates. So this is um, unheard of, I would say, in the last number of decades. And what that does, to give you a concrete example, an investor buying a five-year government of Germany bond um, has a negative yield to maturity, which means that if you put your money in there, you are guaranteed, mathematically guaranteed, a capital loss, uh, which flies in the face of conventional finance theory. And yet here we are. And so given the fact that so much of the bond market has a negative interest rate or negative yield to maturity, that has exerted what we call 
a downward gravitational pull on North American, on the North American yield curve and North American interest rates. So some of this um, is actually driven by the fact that interest rates are so low globally. If you look at the where you know interest rates should be, um, they probably should be higher given the kind of economic momentum we've gotten, particularly out of the US. So in summary, I think it's low inflation, it's very low inflation, slowing growth, and this downward gravitational pull from interest rates being so low internationally. Hey, thanks, Stefan. Okay, so what sectors or types of stocks will most benefit from the Fed's very dovish stance now? Yeah, and, and that's, um, it's actually a very interesting change in narrative because if you look at uh, what investors were focused on last year and part of the reason why the stock market did so poorly at the end of last year was because it became an article of faith that the Federal Reserve was going to keep hiking rates and so engineer a recession, which has happened. That's been the pattern, uh, again, over the last several decades. And I think that this policy pivot uh, which is the, the topic of our, our discussion today. The real policy pivot was when Jerome Powell, chairman of the Federal Reserve, said, hold on now, um, it is not uh, a preordained thing that we're going to keep raising rates. We're going to look at the data. We're going to look at inflation. We're going to look at economic momentum and then decide whether we're going to raise rates. Uh, and so it was interpreted correctly, in our view, as a very, very dovish statement. Uh, and so interest rates from that point on really started, that was a catalyst for interest rates to start going down. Now, I want to be very clear about this. Yes, an inverted yield curve is has been a bad omen, um, but everybody's looking at that right now. Uh, so that may affect the, the performance of that indicator. But generally speaking, from an equity valuation perspective, lower interest rates are a good thing because if you look at the value of a stock or the stock market in general, it is nothing more than the present value of all future cash flows. And when those cash flows are discounted at a lower rate, at a lower risk-free rate or interest rate, then the present value is higher. So generally speaking, lower interest rates should be interpreted as a good thing. Now, which sectors specifically benefit from this? Well, clearly the classic defensive sectors. Classic defensive sectors, and you're already seeing it in North American markets. Here I'm talking about utilities, talking about REITs, uh, talking about uh, pipelines in, in the energy space. The reason why lower interest rates are so helpful is that, number one, the cost of financing for these asset-heavy uh, business models, cost of financing goes down. But on top of that, their higher dividend yields become relatively more attractive given lower bond yields. And so, um, you know, I, I think that the trend is very, very clear. These classic defensive sectors have done well. We've also looked at um, over 80 years of data uh, for the U.S. market and we get similar results. So those results are actually intuitive. If you look at the last, well, actually over 80 years, when the yield curve has is, is quite flat, under 60 basis points of, uh, of steepness, then you get sectors like tobacco, sectors, again, utilities, food processors, pharmaceuticals, medical devices, very, very defensive sectors, those tend to do best. 
And this is how we have been constructing our portfolios or changing our portfolios. We've really emphasized companies like Pipelines. We've emphasized defensive stocks like Johnson & Johnson, Medtronic. Uh, so that fits in, I think, very well with uh, the historical data and where we sit right now in terms of the um, in terms of the yield curve and in terms of the general interest rate environment. One last point on this is that high what we call high duration stocks tend to do well. And these aren't your classically defensive stocks, but think of a company like Amazon. Uh, when I talk about high duration, what I mean by this is um, the value of those stocks is really dependent on uh, their high growth rate, but you know, very, very long dated future cash flows. So the, the, the cash flows that Amazon will technically generate 25 years from now actually matter to that stock's valuation. And once again, a lower interest rate really boosts the value of such a stock. Uh, I use that example because Amazon is a stock we've been recommending for years. Uh, and it actually is the type of stock that can benefit from the current interest rate environment. All right. Thanks, Stefan. Well, that wraps things up for now. And just to keep this in mind that today's market update was on the policy pivots that we've been seeing uh, in global monetary and uh, uh, fiscal policies. And these shifts uh, clearly uh, give us some mixed feelings. It's unsettling that the pivots are occurring at all because it means that there are risks out there to the economy. However, it is encouraging that the pivots are, are, are occurring because it means if they work, we, it increases the likelihood that we'll be able to skirt recession down the road. We'll just have to wait and see. And with that, uh, I thank you all for listening to this special Wealth Experience podcast. We encourage you to explore further questions. We encourage you to explore further questions with your BMO Wealth Management Relationship Manager. For more information on the Wealth Experience podcast or to subscribe on Google Podcasts, Spotify, and iTunes, visit www.bmo.com slash the wealth experience, all one word. And again, thank you. Market Outlook has been brought to you by BMO Wealth Management. Until next time, enjoy your wealth experience.